0: And turn to the Gospel of John this morning, if you're not there already. We're, uh, we're actually almost halfway. We're almost halfway in terms of how we'll break it down. This will be in chapter 9 of John today. If you read much of the Bible, and I certainly hope you do, it won't take long to recognize there's a wide variety of styles of writing in the Bible. When God, in his infinite wisdom, divinely inspired men, uh, dozens of men from across centuries, to write down the Holy Scriptures. He did so using the personality of those individual men. They weren't like robots producing an automated message with no flavor to it. Instead, each of those books in the Bible contains the, the full personality and literary ability of the writer, of the individual writer. And to me, that's especially clear in the Gospel of John. If you've read all four Gospels, you'll probably notice John is very different. He, for one, he has a very specific purpose. So he's not just writing all of Jesus' life. We know that his purpose is to show that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But he also uses some literary techniques to emphasize his point. And one of those that we've seen quite a bit is his use of irony and sarcasm. John loves highlighting the irony of a situation. The irony of chapter 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, who is one of the religious leaders of all the Jewish people, can't understand even the basics of the kingdom of God, according to Jesus The irony we see in chapter 4 when the signs faith of the Galilean Jews is overshadowed by the authentic faith of the despised Samaritans. The irony when in chapter 6 the crowds that readily filled their bellies with the bread that Jesus multiplied now leave him when Jesus offers them bread that actually leads to eternal life. And this morning in chapter 9, we'll see an even more tragic irony as a blind man gains his sight while at the same time those who can see begin to go blind. So I'd invite you to to turn to John chapter 9 this morning to a well-known account that contains one of the most famous phrases from the Gospel of John. And we'll see that this chapter uh, begins to have this clear distinction forming between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. Up to this point... They have obviously been at odds with one another, but it was still possible for a, a good Jew to, to kind of follow Jesus, but still be involved in the synagogue life and in Jude, Judaism. But now it's getting to the point where you must choose who you're following. You either follow Jesus as your leader or you follow the Jewish leaders, Because their messages are starting to oppose one another. You can't can't find the middle ground. And we'll see this play out in today's passage as well. So let's go ahead and read, beginning in John 9, 1. Here's what it says. As he passed by, Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent." So he went and washed and came back seeing. We can safely assume that this account takes place in Jerusalem. It's still in the same time frame, generally, as the feast of Booths that we've been in in the last few chapters. And the disciples have rejoined Jesus at some point, and they're walking through Jerusalem, and they pass by a man who's blind, and somehow they they seem to know that this man has been blind from birth. He's never known anything but blindness. And the first thing that comes out of the disciples' mouths is asking the question, whose sin caused this to happen was it his parents or was it his own and what a striking question oftentimes the questions we ask can reveal more about us than the actual statements that we make the clear assumption here is that this blindness is is a direct result of sin either that the parents committed before the child was born or that somehow this this person committed when he was still in the womb there's an assumed connection between suffering and sin This was actually a very common thought in the Palestinian um, land during that day. And they would be partially correct in a sense. On one hand, you could say that that this is true, that all suffering in truth is a result of sin. When you look to Genesis 3 and the fall, where all suffering, pain, and sickness is a result of sin, that would be theologically true. But we also have several passages throughout the Bible that confirm suffering is sometimes the direct result of sin. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul, he's addressing how one should uh, come to the Lord's Supper with, with proper respect and reverence. And actually tells the Corinthian church that some of them have grown sick and even possibly died because they came to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. So suffering, direct result of of sin. So it's not unprecedented, but these disciples would be wrong to draw such a tight connection between sin and suffering. That'll lead you down a path of legalism if you let it. The path that leads you to thinking, if I do good things, then God will send me blessings, and if I do bad things, then God will send me curses and and suffering. And that thought envisions a God who's really just as fickle as a toddler. I don't know if you've witnessed a toddler or multiple toddlers um, playing for any amount of time. I do on a daily basis in my home. Feel free to come by anytime if you want to observe this. And you'll know what I mean. It's the opposite of the golden rule. It's not do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's I'm going to do exactly to you what you did to me. If you share with me, then there's a chance I might share with you. But if you hit me, even if it's on accident, I'm going to hit you back. And if we think that God is that fickle, then we're doing God a a grave disservice. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And Jesus shows his disciples just how wrong they are on both counts. This blindness isn't a result of the parent's sin or of the man's sin. It's actually not a result of sin at all. This man was born blind that the works of God may be displayed in him. You see, the disciples looked at this man and saw a problem, only a problem, but Jesus looks straight at this man and sees an opportunity for God's glory to be displayed. His pain can actually have a purpose, and God uses this man's blindness to emphasize that Jesus is the true light of the world, and he does it by giving sight to this blind man. He brings him out of darkness, and again, sometimes our suffering is a result of sin, But much more often in the New Testament, suffering is depicted as an an opportunity to glorify God. What does James 1-2 tell us? It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When we experience suffering of any kind, it can actually serve to strengthen our faith and produce steadfastness. In a way, there's a depth of faith that can only be reached through the trials of life and the lessons of suffering. Then in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul tells us that God gave him a thorn in the flesh We don't know exactly what that was, whether it was an illness or an enemy or something else, but Paul says it was given to him to keep him from being conceited and prideful. The suffering actually produced godliness. It wasn't a punishment. It was a gracious gift of God. And for us believers, I know it goes against all earthly instincts and wisdom, but when we experience suffering of any kind, let's train ourselves to ask God, what are you trying to teach me? in this? What are you trying to produce in me? How are you going to receive glory from this? And when we do that, we can redeem our suffering and give our pain a purpose. And that's what Jesus does here in this man's life. But now look at how Jesus performs this miracle. Very unusual, a little weird. Usually Jesus just speaks healing or touches someone and they're immediately healed. But he does something completely different here. And notice it doesn't say that this man was even spoken to. (laughs) Maybe they're standing here just talking about this guy. He can hear them. He can't see them. And it doesn't say that this man asked for healing. It's it's unlike the man in chapter 5, the invalid, that Jesus asked him first, do you want to be healed? Instead, Jesus just takes the initiative, spits on the ground, creates some mud paste, and puts it on his eyes and tells him to go wash it off. And when he does, he comes back seen for the first time in his life. Now, the story gets interesting here because this miracle not only gives this man sight, but also creates a bit of an uproar as to the authenticity of his story. And it begins with his neighbors. So let's pick back up in verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but it is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened?" He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. I can't help but read this passage with some humor here. These people don't believe he's the same man, and he's saying, I'm, I'm the man. <laughs> it's me. And the thing is, life for a blind person in these days would have been very difficult. There's practically no hope of having a vocation to support themselves. You're likely left to beg on the streets just hoping for charity from those who pass by. And of course, if you needed to get somewhere, you would have to have someone help lead you to get there, to guide you. And it's likely that this man's parents or his friends would lead him to the same place every morning and let him sit there and beg and then come get him and take him back home later in the day. The neighbors would have been very accustomed to seeing this same blind man sitting there begging day in and day out. So now imagine suddenly one day, they think they see the same guy, but he's walking around, not bumping into things by himself, and, and they're so confused. He's probably a little bit excited, too. He's, he's never seen anything. He's been blind since birth, so you can imagine he's, he's probably a little excited, adrenaline rushing through him, and they're dumbfounded. Some, some people think this is the guy. Others say, no, it looks like him, but it's actually not. And all the time he's saying, I am the man. And they ask him, how did this happen? And take note of how he describes Jesus right here. He says, the man called Jesus. He calls Jesus a man. And remember this because we'll want to track how he progresses in his faith. The neighbors, they were completely amazed at this occurrence. They had no clue what to think about it. So they bring this man to the Pharisees. Now, we usually think when we see Pharisees, we think bad people. Um, But there's no reason to think that his neighbors had any malicious intent here. The Pharisees were their religious leaders, and they're leaders for their entire life, really. And so there's apparently a blind man seeing. This doesn't happen every day, so they're bringing him to them to figure out what's going on. Then here's what happens next in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a a prophet. So this man goes from being questioned by his neighbors to now being interrogated by the Jews. And the main issue here that John lets us know is this: this occurred on a Sabbath. So it's the same thing that we saw happen in chapter 5 when Jesus healed the invalid by the pool. John sneaks in there, oh, by the way, this was on the Sabbath. And that changes everything. And there's, it's good to be looking at chapter 5 because there's so many parallels between these two accounts. And in both cases, the, the incredible healings, the, the Pharisees are only concerned with the fact that they happened on the Sabbath. They don't really care about the fact that this man with this condition, his whole life it has now been miraculously healed. But they want to know, why has this man done work on the Sabbath? Which, by the way, if you if wondered, why did Jesus spit in the dirt and create the mud? Well, it doesn't exactly tell us, but, but I think a, a good hypothesis would be that that making mud that would be germinating and and creating soil would be considered work. So Jesus is actually doing work on two counts. He's he's actually creating mud and then he's healing somebody. So perhaps Jesus is doubling down on breaking this Sabbath according to the Jews. He he's not trying to avoid getting himself with in hot water with the Jews. And they're concerned, why did this man carry this out? on the Sabbath. There's lots of division. Some of them automatically assume that since Jesus did work on the Sabbath, he can't be from God because he's a lawbreaker. They don't understand that Jesus is fully God and, and God is always at work on the Sabbath. But then others say, wait, wait a minute. No, he, he must be somebody special because he's doing these miraculous signs. He can't just be a sinner. So they turn to this man and ask him, who does he think?" Jesus is. And they're probably hoping they'll get something negative or derogatory from him, but instead he calls him a prophet. So notice the progress already. Since verse 11, he referred to him as the man called Jesus, and now he's already referring to Jesus as a prophet. He's someone clearly sent and empowered by God. But that's the last thing that they want this man to say. And they won't stop here, so pick back up with me in verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So again, pretty humorous account here. They don't believe this man was actually blind before. His neighbors didn't believe him, the Pharisees didn't believe him, so they call in the big guns. They call in his parents. This is a little embarrassing. It's almost like they're putting this man in a police lineup and asking his parents, like, can you point to who your son is? They want to know, is this your son and was he blind before? And on top of all this, his parents totally throw him under the bus. They say, yeah, this is our son. He was blind. Now he's not, but we don't know anything about it. Don't know who he is. He's old enough. He's a man. Ask him. They want nothing to do with this situation. And John gives us the insight that they say this because they're afraid of being cast out of the synagogue. Apparently, it is public knowledge that the Jews had agreed that if someone follows Jesus as the Christ, they'll be cast out. Now, that may not sound like too big of a deal to us on the surface. It's kind of hard to relate these days. If, If someone gets excommunicated from a church now... They could just go find another church where no one knows them and join there and it's all fine. But, but here, there isn't a synagogue on every corner. And every synagogue is, is tightly connected to one another. So if you're cast out, you are really cast out. There's no connection to public religious life. And that was everything for them. There was an intimate connection between devotion to God and to the place of worship and access to the rabbis. So this is no light thing that's being threatened. And that's evidenced by the fact that that these parents are too afraid to even defend their son. So naturally, they turn back on this man one more time. And here's how they finish with him, starting in verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoke to Moses, but for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. So I want to encourage you to reread this story several times this week, because I promise you, the more you read this story... The, the better it gets. As I've read it this week, each time it, it, the drama comes out more and more. And the Pharisees say, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. In other words, tell the truth. Be completely honest. Glorify God in your speech by condemning this man called Jesus. They, de- they so desperately want someone else to affirm their words and labels that they've put on Jesus. Jesus. And they're descending on this man like wolves. But we get from this man a simple response that almost everyone here can recognize. It almost transcends our culture. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Doesn't that line resonate with you? That that phrase has been used over the centuries to describe the mystery of salvation. It's not just a formula. It's not just an equation. An encounter with the living Christ and the Holy Spirit of God distinctly changes and alters your life. You cannot leave unchanged when you experience the grace of God. This man was blind, but now he sees clear change. There's clear evidence. And is that your story? I bet it is. I've talked with a few of you, and I know that that's your story, that when God got a hold of you, you changed. People were thinking, is this the same guy? Is this the same girl that we knew? And it's because when you encounter God, when you encounter the living God, you can't leave unchanged. Or maybe you were saved at a real young age and you think, well, I didn't really live long enough apart from Christ to go down those roads too far. But that's okay. Think about your own personality and the own temptations that seem to grip you and I'm sure you can kind of imagine the kind of person you would be today if it weren't for the grace of God. And God hadn't spared you from those years of wondering. I know that's my story. I know without a doubt that if, if I wasn't saved today, I would be probably the most careless, selfish jerk that you could imagine. All I know that I was blind, but now I see. But of course, this doesn't satisfy these Jews But this man doesn't back down. He says, I've already told you all this. Why are you so interested? Do you you want to be his disciple too? Which, of course, (laughs) they hate that response. They fall back on, no, we're disciples of Moses. We know Moses was sent by God. He spoke for God. But as for this guy, Jesus, we don't know where he comes from. But then look at the boldness and the confidence bursting out of this man. And really using nothing else but a little common sense, he begins debating the religious leaders of all Judaism. He seems to understand the scriptures better than they do. And here's where we see the tragic irony in this chapter. This blind man has received his sight. For the first time in his whole life, he sees the world around him. But he sees something else even more important. He's able to see that Jesus isn't just a man. He's at least a prophet and probably more. But the Pharisees, who have seen perfectly fine their whole life, are blind to the most important truth. And it doesn't matter that they're the most well-educated. It doesn't matter that they're wealthy and powerful. It doesn't even matter that they know the scriptures on the surface better than anyone. The truth is right in front of them, and yet they're completely blind to the identity of Jesus. And the key phrase in this man's speech is in verse 32. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. This has never happened before. There's no category for this. Think in your mind through the Old Testament. There are periods of miracles around the time of Moses and the Exodus and around the time of Elijah and Elisha. There's some healings. There's even people raised from the dead. But we never hear of a man who was born blind receiving his sight. And why is that? Well, it's because giving sight to the blind would be a distinct marker of who the Messiah was. It was to be a clear sign that the Messianic age was dawning. These Jewish leaders would know this to be true from their scriptures. Isaiah 29, 18, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 35, 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Isaiah 42, 6, I'll give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. You see, the Jews knew that one of the clearest signs of the coming Messiah was that the, those born blind would receive their sight, not just spiritually, but also physically, is being fulfilled in their time, and yet they're completely blind to the truth, while the blind man now sees. And for it, they cast him out of the synagogue. What his parents feared would happen to them is now happened to him. But I love how this ends in verse 35. It says, Jesus, when he heard that this man had been cast out, Jesus takes the initiative and goes and finds this man and says to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. So assuming all of this happened in one day, just picture the 24 hours that this man has experienced. He began the day sitting in the street in probably the same spot he has been every single day, ready just to beg, sitting there in complete darkness to the world around him. But then someone comes and rubs mud on his eyes, tells him to go wash it off, and when he does, he sees the world around him for the very first time. And not only does he receive his physical sight, but he also receives spiritual sight and ends up worshiping before the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, before the day is over. He moves from recognizing Jesus as a man to a prophet and now as Lord. What a day for this blind man. And Christian, can we thank God for what He has done in our life? That you were blind, but now you see. Maybe it happened when you were six. Maybe it happened when you were 16 or 36 or 66, but the light of the world penetrated the darkness of your heart and brought you into the marvelous light. And all the glory goes to God. And our response should be the same as this man's. He worshiped. It says, He worshiped. Jesus, not meaning he started singing a song, but he worshiped Jesus, giving him glory and praise and adoration. And how are you doing in your life in worshiping Jesus, the light of the world? Let me challenge you this week to worship him like never before, worship him with your thoughts. Think thoughts that are worthy of our God, that are worthy of Him, and think them constantly throughout the day. Worship Him with your attitude. Reflect the joy and hope of a redeemed child of God. Worship Him with your words, both in prayer and in song and in normal conversations as you speak with people every day. Don't be afraid to brag on God a little bit and worship Him with your hands. As Paul says, in whether we But whether we eat, whether we drink, no matter what we do, do it all for the glory of God. So let us worship the light of the world for once we were blind, but now we see. Would you pray with me?